Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm Hugh. And I'm Joshua. You're listening to The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of international news. Yes, two weeks have flown by just like that, but as always, we've got some intriguing stories to chat about. We certainly do. Let's get into it. We're heading first to Samoa and to what some people have described as the most dramatic election in the Pacific in a century. First of all, the election could unseat the ruling party in Samoa, which has been in power for nearly 40 years. And second, the opposition party is run by a woman called Naomi Mata'afa, meaning Samoa could actually have its first ever female prime minister. But here's the massive catch, Hugh. The election, which was held in April, resulted in a tie, and it looks like the opposition candidate, Naomi Mata'afa, may be prevented from becoming the country's first female prime minister because of, get this, a gender quota law designed to increase the number of women in parliament. Yeah, that is crazy. Um, I have a lot of questions, but first of all, why has one party been in power for almost 40 years? Well, the party that you're referring to is called the Human Rights Protection Party, or HRPP for short. They've been in power since 1982, largely because there hasn't been an effective opposition party. That has effectively enabled the HRPP and its PM to do whatever they want. So, for example, in 2009, the HRPP passed a law changing the side of the road that Samoans drive on so the government could import cheap cars from Japan. It's also relocated the international dateline to make it more convenient to do business with Australia and Asia. And the government, even in 2017, amended the constitution to officially declare Samoa a Christian state. Right. So after 40 years of tinkering with Samoan aesthetics, why has the HRPP lost support now? It all links back to one particular law that the HRPP passed last year. And that law changed the way that the Samoan Supreme Court works. And it gave the government power to dismiss judges. And a lot of people across Samoa saw those changes as an attack on the rule of law, including members of the HRPP themselves. The deputy PM, Naomi Mata'afa, who I mentioned just before, resigned from the HRPP and took up a position in a protest party called FAST. And she took a lot of government MPs with her. So literally overnight, Samoa had its first competitive opposition party in more than 10 years. And I imagine that's really changed the landscape of the recent election. It really did. So FAST ran a really, really effective campaign. When you ask Fear Mayor Naomi Mata'afa about the current government, she doesn't mince her words. It's just become, if you have the numbers, you can do what you like. The election was held in early April, and in an extraordinary outcome, the HRPP and FAST each won 25 seats in the 51-seat parliament, and that left it to an independent, who held the 51st seat, to decide who the winning party was. And what did the independent decide? 
Well, he announced just last week that he would join FAST, the opposition party, and it looked like Samoa was about to have a change in government and its first female PM, but then everything changed. So near and now, so far. Fia Mayor Naomi Mata'afa and her FAST party, on the cusp of claiming a historic victory, have watched it slide away. The very same day that the independent MP joined FAST, Samoa's head of state declared that he would be creating an extra seat in Parliament. Wait, why? Well, this is where the gender quota law comes in. Samoa has a law that says that women must make up at least 10% of MPs. And at the election, only five women were elected. And you do the quick maths, five female MPs out of 51 seats falls just short of the 10% quota, coming in at 9.8%. So to fix the situation, the head of state decided that he would create an extra seat in the parliament and award it to a woman. The only problem is the woman that he awarded it to was a member of the HRPP party, meaning that both FAST and HRPP had gained an extra seat and both parties are deadlocked again, this time on 26 seats each. Wow. Um, how did FAST react to that? Well, they were understandably quite angry. The FAST party claims the electoral office has misinterpreted the gender quota and has filed a motion to have the new seat declared unconstitutional. They accused the head of state, who was appointed by the HRPP, funnily enough, of favouring his mates in the party and trying to make it win government again. And as you heard in that audio clip, they've launched a constitutional challenge. So the winner will be decided by the Supreme Court, the very court that the HRPP recently altered. So stay tuned because I think this story isn't going away. It's got quite a fair bit to run yet. Well, Joshua, when you think of national leaders going into battle, you probably think of medieval kings riding into battle on horseback or perhaps someone like Napoleon commanding his army from a hilltop. But what if I told you that only a few days ago, a head of state was actually killed in combat? fighting in the heat of a modern-day battle. Hello and welcome. We start with some breaking news. The army in Chad says President Idris Deby has died from injuries sustained in fighting at the front line. Now, Chad's army is... So, as you just heard, President Idris Deby of the African nation of Chad recently lost his life fighting on the front lines against the country's main rebel group. And as I'm sure you can appreciate, that's big news. Yeah, it certainly is. I imagine it's pretty rare these days for a head of state to die in battle. Yeah, I did some research around that. And according to what I found, it's been 151 years since the head of an internationally recognised country was killed in the heat of battle. Wow. So the last time this happened was in 1870 when the president of Paraguay died in the midst of combat trying to kill a Brazilian general with his sword. But in the case of President Debbie, it's alleged that during a visit to the northern front line, he was actually killed by rebel gunfire. And that suggests that he was well within the battle area when the incident took place. Since 2016, Chad has been engaged in a conflict against a rebel group known as the Front for Change and Concord in Chad, or FACT. FACT has the goal of overthrowing the Chadian government and it's taken advantage of instability in Chad's northern neighbour of Libya, using the war-torn country as a safe base of operations 
from which it can launch attacks into Chadian territory. And in the last few weeks, FACT has been making significant gains. In fact, all non-essential US embassy staff were just withdrawn from the country because the FACT rebels are now quite close to taking the capital of Anjamina. And really, the death of President Debbie just speaks to the chaos of the situation. Yeah, gosh. So have they worked out who's going to replace President Debbie? For sure. President Debbie has actually been replaced by his son, of all things, Muhammad Idris Debbie Into, who is a four-star general in the Chadian military. At just 37 years old, Muhammad Debbie is the new face of Chad. As a young general, he was in charge of his father's security detail. Now, following Idris Debbie's death, his son has been thrust into the spotlight. As president, Into will lead an 18-month-long military government alongside other generals. But the strange thing is, even though the latest incident only affected the president, the new military junta has dissolved the National Assembly and replaced the constitution with a transitional charter. And at this moment, Joshua, you might be wondering the same thing I wondered when I first heard this, which is whether something else might be going on here. Several international commentators have raised questions about the political takeover, given that ex-president Debbie died surrounded by soldiers on the front line and his death was announced by the military. Naturally, some are beginning to ask whether this was actually just a coup d'etat. Yeah, it smells a little bit fishy. So where does this leave Chad, do you think? The event is going to have major implications, that's for sure. Uh, For one, ex-president Debbie was a very authoritarian ruler. Uh, He'd actually only just won his sixth election in a row when he was killed, although similarly to Samoa, the vote had been uh, challenged by the opposition and was widely seen as illegitimate. So with one authoritarian ruler having been replaced by an authoritarian military council, a lot of Chadians have expressed discontent about the political and democratic future of their country. The news is surprising. I'm moved by it. The rumours that are going around about the transitional council, they are already talking about dissolving parliament. That is delicate. We have a constitution. So for me, I'd say it was a coup and he was killed. At a security level, meanwhile, political upheaval on the home front is likely to make it more difficult for the Chadian military to resist the facts advance on N'Djamena. Beyond that, ex-President Debbie was a close ally of the United States and former colonial power France. So with his passing, Washington and Paris may have lost an important partner in a region that is crucial to the war on terror. Chances are that if you've got a mobile phone, you probably recognize those songs and you've probably downloaded TikTok. The video sharing app is incredibly popular. Around 2.6 billion people have downloaded it since it was first launched in 2016, and up to a billion people use it on a monthly basis. But despite its success, the company may actually be facing one of its biggest ever legal challenges. And to give you an idea of how big this challenge is, if it's successful, TikTok may be forced to pay children across the UK and the EU tens of thousands of pounds each. That's a lot of money, and it's the sort of thing which makes me wish I had TikTok. (laughs) But who's suing TikTok, and why are they arguing that the company should be paying money to kids? Well, the lawsuit is being bought by the former UK Children's Commissioner, Anne Longfield. 
And she's arguing that TikTok has illegally harvested the data of young children. And what she's alleging here is arguably no ordinary privacy breach. According to her, TikTok not only collects your date of birth, your email address, and profile pictures, like many other apps do, but it also reportedly collects your location, all the videos and voice recordings that are uploaded, information about your religious beliefs and sexual orientation, and even your biometric data, so your unique face shape. And if TikTok has done these things, it will have breached privacy laws in the UK and Europe that specifically apply to children, and that's why it may need to compensate them. And the number of children TikTok may have to pay is huge. The lawsuit is being bought on behalf of all children under the age of 13 in the UK and all children under the age of 16 in the EU who have used TikTok since May 2018. Now, it's estimated that in the UK alone, there are over three and a half million children who fit that description. So you can imagine the cost to TikTok if it has to pay each of them tens of thousands of pounds. The compensation claim will run into the billions. Yeah, sounds like they're in a bit of trouble. Uh, When will we know the outcome of this? Well, the legal system, of course, moves really, really slowly. So we're not likely to hear the outcome for at least three years. So we're all going to have to be pretty patient on this front. But if the past is anything to go by, TikTok could be on shaky ground, I reckon. In February this year, it agreed to settle a similar lawsuit in the US for millions of dollars. And what's more, it was also recently fined in South Korea for data breaches. But these aren't the only issues that are facing TikTok at the moment. The app has also been caught up in escalating tensions between China and other countries. And that's because TikTok is owned by Chinese company ByteDance. Valued at over $100 billion, ByteDance is also one of the most valuable tech startups. It was only in... And there are concerns about ByteDance's close links to the Chinese government. The Ministry of Electronics and Information uh, Technology uh, accused these apps of being engaged in what they called prejudicial actions to sovereignty and integrity of India. They claimed that these apps... Last year, India permanently banned TikTok and 223 other Chinese apps. The government claimed that TikTok was undermining the data and privacy of India's citizens and therefore weakening the country's sovereignty and defence capabilities. And that's pretty extraordinary allegations to make. And of course, as I'm sure we all remember, Donald Trump had a pretty fraught relationship with TikTok too. We're looking at TikTok. We may be banning TikTok. We may be doing some other things or a couple of options, but a lot of things are happening. So we'll see what happens. But Trump also claimed that TikTok may be passing users' data to the Chinese government, which, of course, TikTok denied doing. Trump persisted, though, and you may remember that he issued an executive order that blocked downloads of the app. Ultimately, a US judge overturned those orders. And while there's been no signs that the current US government will block TikTok again, there is still a lot of questions about TikTok's relationship with the Chinese government. Some people argue that China's National Intelligence Law of 2017 allows the Chinese government to force businesses to hand over data, And some experts have also pointed to evidence that the app may be restricting and deleting material that Beijing doesn't like. TikTok has also been accused of censoring videos that mention Tiananmen Square or Tibetan independence. 
further fueling fears that, if pressured, the company might be willing to share more than your cat video. So as tensions continue to bubble between China and the West, I think these sorts of questions about TikTok are probably going to continue surfacing. Un projet de loi contre les séparatismes sera présenté en Conseil des ministres à la rentrée pour éviter que certains groupes so you might have heard a little bit about this in the news, Josh, but recently there has been some fairly major tension between France and the Islamic world. You see, major protests have been going on across the Islamic world, particularly in Northern Africa and Pakistan, following what many have called an anti-Islamic crackdown in France. And this comes as the French public continues to debate how to balance France's secular and multicultural values against the backdrop of mounting intercommunal tension and terrorist attacks in the country. So is there anything specific that the Islamic world has been responding to? Yep, so there have been two main issues which have provoked the backlash. The first has been the ongoing debate around the depiction of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Broadly speaking, France is a very secular society. And that means that it's entirely normal for French publications such as the famous Charlie Hebdo to regularly create satirical cartoons which mock prominent religious figures such as Jesus and Muhammad. But when a French school teacher by the name of Samuel Paty recently showed one of these cartoons to his class as part of his lesson, he became the target of a fatal terrorist attack in retaliation for allegedly mocking the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Demonstrations are expected across France today in a show of solidarity after the beheading of a teacher on his way home from school. Thousands gathered. That event sparked Paris a backlash across France, with many commentators demanding the reinvigoration of France's secular republican values in order to challenge the so called rise of Islamist values in France. And so what came of the commentators' demands? What happened next? Well, since that incident, French politicians have started rolling out new laws which they say defends France's secularist values against religion. The most controversial of these initiatives has been a proposed law titled the Separatism Bill, which claims to restore secularism to the classroom and the public domain. The law is controversial, however, because it forbids the wearing of Islamic face coverings for people under the age of 18 it outlaws Islamic women from wearing coverings when accompanying their children on school excursions, and it forces charities and Islamic places of worship to essentially register themselves with the state. Naturally, this has led to a lot of disagreement, with some calling the proposed law a necessary solution in the face of mounting religious extremism in the country, and others calling it a fairly thinly veiled attack on France's Islamic minority. Gosh, so where's the backlash been the fiercest then? Well, Joshua, there's certainly been a lot of backlash to the law in France. In Paris, hundreds stand up to protest against a bill which they say curbs religious freedom. Protesters say it could turn all Muslims into potential suspects. Now, activists also say... But arguably, the fiercest responses come from Pakistan, of all places. For over a week there, an outlawed Islamist organisation known as Tariq Elibak Pakistan has mounted fierce protests. <laughs> clashing with security officials, burning effigies of French President Emmanuel Macron, threatening French citizens and businesses, 
and even taking some Pakistani police hostage. The protesters were originally calling for a boycott of French exports and the formal expulsion of the French ambassador, although the Tariq el group is now calling for calm after the Pakistani government agreed to call a parliamentary vote to expel the ambassador. The French embassy in Pakistan has advised all French nationals and companies to temporarily leave Pakistan. Violent anti-France protests paralyzed... Similar protests have taken place elsewhere across Africa and the Middle East, although this is arguably the most successful example of an anti-French backlash succeeding in changing official state policy. Wow, diplomatic expulsions and international protests. Where do we go from here? It's very hard to say. Um, There's no evidence that France is going to back down from these laws. And as Pakistan's protests taper off, the situation might become a little bit calmer in the short run. But really, in the long term, the situation just speaks to the need for Western societies to continue to engage with the issue of respectfully integrating different cultural groups. Because I think it's fair to say that it didn't have to end up like this for France and the Islamic world. Yeah, I think you're right there. Well, that is all for this wrap-up, and it's also the end of our current season on religion and politics. We're going to take a fortnight's break, but then Jen, Emma, Hugh and myself will be back with a whole new season. That's right, and our focus this time is going to be on climate change. We've lined up some amazing guests who will be sharing their thoughts on some really important environmental issues, like the fight over Antarctica's future, how our diet is changing the climate, and why young people are taking governments to court. Yeah, you definitely don't want to miss it. So hit subscribe and stay tuned for our first episode, which will be out on May 11. And follow us, the Young Diplomat Society, on Facebook and Instagram for more great analysis and content. We will see you in a fortnight. Bye.